John chapter 8, turn with me if you have a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand and we can put one in your hand. Glad to let you, we can even make sure it's already set up in the 8th chapter. We finished chapter 7 last week. If you're uh, visiting with us or new, we're going through the book of John in our Only Believe series. Those of you online, welcome to you as well. John chapter 8, starting in verse 1, I'm going to read verses 1 through 11. But Jesus went out to the Mount of Olives. Now early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. When they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman is caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. So when they they continued asking him, they just kept pressing him, he raised himself up and said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him throw the first stone at her, or throw throw a stone at her first. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it being convicted by their conscience went out one by one, beginning with the oldest to the last, or the least, or the youngest. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, Where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Let's pray. Father, we ask now again for the ministry, the help, the the illumination of the Holy Spirit in this place. I need your help. We need ears that are soft, hearts that are soft, Lord, those online, those that are here, those that are out in the courtyard. Lord, you'd speak to us by your Spirit. We ask for the manifold grace of God to be poured out here. Lord, remove me once from the, again from the equation that we would all hear from Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So the feast comes to an end, and everyone returns to their own homes. It's the Feast of Tabernacles. Remember, there were three feasts that all the Jewish males had to attend. This was the last of those three feasts. Jesus, of course, was there. But Jesus, after the feast ends, he remains in Judea, and he goes just outside the city to the Mount of Olives, which faces faces east there, looking straight down on the Temple Mount. And we see he's right back in the temple very early in the morning. And the religious leaders, they seem to anticipate that Jesus will not be leaving town just yet. Uh, whether they heard this from the disciples or something, they, they seem to anticipate that Jesus is not leaving. And they decide to employ yet another tactic in their endeavor to rid themselves of Jesus, to invalidate him, to indict him, uh, to ultimately kill and remove him. They want Jesus gone. Just like I was telling the first service in North Korea, they want the Christians gone. They don't want to like tolerate them. They want them out altogether, either killed or imprisoned. But here, they want to get rid of Jesus, and this time, rather than a direct assault on Jesus' words and proclamations, they instead go with a trap. 
And the goal is to force Jesus into a decision, into a statement that he can't get out of. And they'll use actual people as props. You know, wicked leaders like to use people as props. Still happens today. They'll, they want to use people as props for their scheme and for their setup. But just as these leaders are driven by a lust for control and power, and we see this around the world still. I mean, we have world leaders that are just driven for power. They don't really care about their people. They care about power. They care about position. And this is the Pharisees. But not Jesus. He was motivated by what? Love. He was motivated by love. Love for his father, first and foremost. But also love for the world that he came to save. A love for people bound in sin. A love for people bound in confusion, hatred, and darkness. Even love for the men that hated him. And despised him. You know, we're supposed to pray for our enemies. You know that, right? We're supposed to love those that even spitefully use us. Not easy, but it's our call. Love was at the heart of Jesus' coming to this world. And his, his intentional steps all the way to the cross, every step along the way, demonstrated his love for rescuing souls. He had a love for rescuing souls. By the way, the closer you and I get to Jesus, we will develop a love for rescuing souls. Now, we don't really rescue their souls. We just throw out the life preserver. We don't really do the rescuing. We just say, hey, this, this is the rescuer. This is Jesus. If you're taking notes, you see the title this morning, Love Came Down, the Compassionate Savior. Aren't you glad you have a compassionate Savior? You're glad when you've messed up, you have a compassionate Savior. When other people mess up, then you have to have compassion. But we left off with the Pharisees indignant and their mocking response to the temple officers. This was at the end of chapter 7. Because those officers had failed to arrest Jesus. And they mocked Nicodemus for asserting that Jesus deserved a fair hearing. They, of course, had no interest in fairness. Remember they said, what are you, from Galilee? That wasn't a compliment. But if the scribes and Pharisees are anything at all, we'll have to agree they're persistent, aren't they? They're persistent. Kind of like the media here. They might not be truthful, but they are persistent. If I tell you this enough times, you'll believe me. No, I, you can tell me eight trillion times and I will not believe you because I can see truth and I can see error. And, uh, you know, you can tell me that that's not the moon, that that's actually a slice of cheese, and I'm not going to believe you. <laughs> I know it's the moon. But if the officers fail to do their job, they're going to have to take matters into their own hands. And they literally do. They grab a woman and drag her into the presence of Jesus, where they claim she was caught red-handed in the very act of adultery, their words. So the trap is set. Now there's evidence that this eyewitness account included in John's writing, so verses 1 through 11 we just read, there's evidence that this section of the text that we just read was not in John's original writing, that it was inserted at a later date. I don't know if you guys have heard this, it's very common uh, understanding among biblical scholars 
that this was likely inserted at a later date. This portion of text is omitted from a number of the earliest Greek manuscripts, this 1 through 11, verses 1 through 11. That said, we know that early church writers mention it in A.D. 100, which is the same time frame that the Apostle John dies, and the Apostle John wrote the book of John, as well as uh, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and Revelation. And I agree with uh, church scholars and, and biblical scholars and theologians that John either wrote these 11 verses separately, or he gave them orally as an oral account, and the early church leaders said this has to be included, and they belie- I believe that they put it chronologically right where it happened that John had given this testimony. The 19th uh, Irish bis- bishop theologian Richard Trench said this, he said it's maybe possible uh, that they had the sanction of Simeon or Jude early in the second century, the second and third bishops of Jerusalem, brethren of our Lord, the last survivors of the apostolic age. These two seem to have been connected with the editing of the gospel for they are probably the we that John speaks of in John 21, 24 and the two unnamed disciples of John 21, 2. And so James, the half-brother of uh, Jesus, and you also had uh, Peter, they were the original pastors over Jerusalem, but later you see here uh, the last of the apostolic age, as he mentions here, Simeon and Jude very well could have said, no, John, I know you didn't write it originally, but this is too important to leave out. We're going to put it exactly as it happened right in the chronology. We don't know. I really believe that it is put there in the chronology. But at any rate, I believe the Holy Spirit has ensured this inclusion because it sheds additional light on the Word of God and it further informs us of the darkness and the deception that Jesus routinely encountered, but how He countered what He encountered. that all make sense? How He countered what He encountered. Now if we follow the chronology of chapter 7, this attempt to stain and discredit uh, Jesus follows immediately after the Feast of Tabernacles. So if you're taking notes, the first thing we'll look at of three things this morning uh, where Jesus finds himself in this situation with the Pharisees where they bring this woman I've titled a Catch-22. Everyone's familiar with, with, with what a Catch-22 is, right? Oxford Dictionary defines a Catch-22 as a dilemma or a difficult circumstance in which there is no escape because of mutually conflicting dependent conditions. In other words, you have no good option. It's kind of like sometimes we vote, right? If I vote for this guy, if I vote for this guy, I get this or I get this, you know, that kind of thing. And you're like, I feel like I'm going to catch 22 sometime, you know. So, uh, but nevertheless, um, a catch 22. Uh, in, their, in their minds, Jesus is, is in a lose-lose situation. We've got him. No matter how he chooses, he's going to look bad, and we're going to look good. And as they place this no-doubt trembling woman before Jesus, can you imagine how humbling it would be for her? Probably has her hair down, covering her face, just humbled, thrown into the midst of a crowd that is there. It says that Jesus sat and was teaching. That's the way the rabbis in the synagogues 
And also in the temple, the rabbis would sit and they'd open the scrolls and they would teach from a seated position. So, I mean, if I really was following the way Jesus off, now he didn't always sit, uh, but I could sit up here and that's how they would teach. Which sometimes after the second service, I would like to do. But, uh, <laughs> but nevertheless, um, Jesus was sitting there and he has a multitude of people. This isn't just some out-of-the-way place. This is in the temple. This would be like uh, in the middle of you know, some high-traffic area in our city where you just throw this woman down and make her feel as exposed as they possibly could. Just cruel on their part. And they cite her sin and they cite her crime. Never mind for a minute that they don't bring the offending man. Last I checked, it takes two people. Although in our country, hundreds. I don't know what the, things are getting weird in this country. So, you know, anything can happen. But in Leviticus 20.10, it says this. The man who commits adultery, this is in the law, and of course they were citing the law. The man who commits adultery, I think they left half the verse out. They just went for the adulteress. The man who commits adultery with another man's wife who commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. There clearly was both the adulterer and the adulteress. But the death penalty is, is clear that under the law of Moses this was punishable by death. Furthermore, the sin of adultery had to be witnessed by at least two witnesses. Everything in the Bible talks about two or more a lot of times it says two or three, two, but at least two witnesses. And you had to be caught in the very act, which is, in, is the case here. They said that they caught her in the very act. This would be incredibly rare to catch someone in the very act. Nearly all scholars believe that this whole thing was a setup. Nearly every scholar I've read thinks the whole thing was a setup. But they remind Jesus of the law's penalty. Not that Jesus doesn't know the law. Of course he does. And they command that, hey, the command and the, the law says she should be stoned. Never mind that just the day prior, if you follow the chronology back in chapter 7, when, when Nicodemus said Jesus deserves a fair hearing as the law uh, mandates, they basically blew Nicodemus off saying, what are you, from Galilee? In other words, shut up. We don't need your opinion. Even though he was actually saying, well, no, we need to follow the law. Um, this entire scene, they're, they're willing to use a woman as a pawn. All in their destroy Jesus, destroy his reputation, and ultimately kill him campaign. And all of the hypocrisy there's a lot of hypocrisy in this scene, right? The favoritism. The man, you're free to go. You've helped us with the setup. The inconsistencies aside, this specific situation regarding the woman with just adultery, it would be cut and dry on its face because the law says two or three witnesses, we have two or three witnesses. In the act, yes, in the act. What's the charge? Adultery. Capital punishment. Death. 
Now, if capital punishment was to be carried out here, though, you need to know it would have been extremely rare. So when you, when you run into people at your work or a different place, say, your Bible kills a lot of people for sins. Say, all right, have you studied the history? David, Pastor David Guzik said this. He said, the rules of evidence in capital cases were extremely strict. The actual act had to be observed by mul uh, multiple witnesses who agreed exactly in their testimony. As a practical matter, virtually no one was executed for adultery since this was relatively a private sin. It was hard and extremely rare, virtually non-existent that you would ever find anyone committing adultery. It didn't matter if you had a rumor about it. It didn't matter if you saw them holding hands. None of that qualified for adultery. There had to be actual caught in the act. And so on top of giving the offending man a free pass, the religious leaders are intent on enforcing the law here in a situation that they rarely or ever do. How convenient. Matter of fact, in the urban cities like Jerusalem, Alexandria, wherever there was Jewish populations in the urban areas, it was actually gotten to the point by the, by the time Jesus comes around and you get the first, second century, that area, uh, it was not even, uh, they didn't really even enforce adultery that much at all. I mean at all. Forget the stoning. They basically, like America today, remember it used to be really, really weird well, I wasn't alive then, but a long time ago, it was odd for people to get a divorce. Now, there's no, ever since no-fault divorce in the early 70s, it just it became not that unusual at all. So that's the way it was early. And I'm not saying, that, again, if those of you that are divorced and, and God has restored you, we're thankful for God's grace. I'm not, I'm not trying to make you feel uncomfortable. What I'm saying is that it was really uncommon at one time in America that if you were divorced, you, you almost had a scarlet letter. But not so much today. And it was then that it was very uncommon that people were going to be ostracized for adultery, but God still hated adultery. So it was interesting that all of a sudden they decided to get very, very, very letter of the law about it. How convenient, right? Well, the text tells us why they did. The only reason it says, says it is, it says it exactly, John writes here, they did this so they might find something to accuse Jesus. They could care less about the adultery. Why? Because they had a lot of lustful thoughts. And they might have been adulterers themselves. We'll get to that shortly here. Jesus, of course, sees right through their feigned outrage. You ever seen some feigned outrage lately? Where people pretend to be outraged? You know they're not. It's all an act. Jesus is not... Uh, He's not impressed by their feigned outrage. And although they think they have him trapped, if Jesus lets the woman go, because they're giving him the option, they're saying, hey, what are you going to decide? Since you're the rabbi here, since you're teaching everybody, since everybody's listening to you, we're bringing someone who's caught red-handed adultery, what are you going to do? If Jesus says, let the woman go, then he's publicly disregarding God's law. That's one side of the Catch-22 ledger. The other side of the Catch-22 ledger, if he says, go ahead and enforce the full weight of the law, yes, she should be stoned, then his reputation of love and mercy and grace is rather tarnished in this moment. 
So they think they have Jesus in a no-win situation. But a win-win for them. But you can't play mind games with God, right? Right? There are people that, that I would not even attempt to take on in chess, much less checkers. <laughs> but you're trying to take on God in a chess match? Can't play mind games with God. Nobody puts God in a catch-22. An infinite God that's holy and righteous has infinite knowledge. He knows a thousand, a million, a trillion ways to come right back and put it right in your own lap. No person or scheme is a match for the wisdom of God. If you're taking notes, let's look at point number two, a convicting silence. A convicting silence. So they continue to say to Jesus, testing him and they... and. As they're talking, as they're saying, what are you going to do? Jesus, verse 6, Jesus stoops down and writes on the ground with his finger as though he didn't hear. Of course he does hear them. He has tuned them out for the moment. Sometimes it's good to tune people out when you realize this is not helping me at all. Just turn the TV off. You know, just, just tune it out. But he tunes them out. And he begins to write. On the ground. He says absolutely nothing. In response to their clever setup, Jesus says absolutely nothing. Sometimes it's good to be quiet. Later, Jesus, before Pilate, will say what? Nothing. He will, be, he will remain quiet. Sometimes the silence speaks. But he remains quiet. He stoops down. He begins to write. It's noteworthy that Jesus stoops down all the way to the ground. On the night of his betrayal, which we also call the Last Supper, the Passover feast, the night that he is there. He gets all the way on the ground. He does what? He washes the disciples' feet. Gets all the way to ground level. All that dust and dirt that's on their feet. At the cross, he'll lay all the way down. In the garden, he'll be all the way down to the ground with great drops of blood. So Jesus stooping down or, or going low. We see this throughout his life, all the way to the end of his life. This woman has been brought low in the presence of many. She probably feels as worthless as the dirt that's on the ground. But Jesus lowers himself to the same dirt that she feels like. We see somewhat of an illusion here of Jesus' entire ministry to the world that he would lower himself to the dirt floor just as he lowered himself to this world that is dirty and dusty. And by the way, we're made of dirt. Interestingly enough. So we see an illusion even to his entire ministry of him stooping down to our condemned condition. And when we look at the full measure of Jesus' ministry and his mission, his lowering of himself raises us up. If he doesn't lower himself, we don't get raised up. But here in this moment, as is often the case, Jesus is hitting multiple targets with one arrow. Multiple targets at one time. He's softening the embarrassment for this woman. Coming down to her level. Softening the embarrassment for her. And now the spotlight's more on him than her. Right? As Jesus has taken the center stage, has, has allowed the spotlight to move off of her and onto him. He's condescended to her lowered position. 
And he responds very calmly and quietly to the Pharisees. What are you going to do? 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 By the way, the world is like that. You need to respond very calmly and quietly to this world that is off its rails. Follow Jesus' lead. He does not wig out calmly. And this diffuses some of the uproar of the entire scene. And he's about to bring conviction to the accusers while at the same time hitting the target, his target, which is escape and rescue of the condemned woman. One action, convicting the one side, freeing her. At this, all in a matter of minutes. Amazing what Jesus can do in just a matter of minutes. And as he begins to write on the ground, to this day nobody knows what Jesus wrote on the ground. We don't know. We can guess, and there's some good guesses out there. Pastors and theologians for the last 2,000 years have been guessing and thinking, and what is this? When you get to heaven, you can ask Jesus, what did you write? <laughs> I don't think you might even tell us then, you know? But you can ask him, what did you write? But uh, different suggestions over the years, um, some have considered, well, maybe Jesus wrote a portion of the law started writing it, a portion of the law out. Of course, he knows the law, frontwards and back. He is the scriptures. What if he wrote the exact names of every accuser, their birth date, their parents, whatever he wanted to write? What if it's a list of sins? What if worse, it's a list of sins with names beside the sins? <laughs> we don't know. But we know that everyone there got really quiet because yeah. they were saying, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? What are you... Oh, that's what you're going to do. <laughs> Whatever you're writing is quieting us. But as Jesus is writing and they, can, they continue to press and ask, what is your answer? And he continues writing as though he doesn't hear a word they're saying. This, by the way, as Jesus is taking his very finger and writing, it's the third time in the scripture we see the finger of God writing. Third time in the Bible. The first, and this is again why I believe that the Holy Spirit uh, wanted the early church to insert this portion. If John had told him, no, no, this has to be in there. This will be the third time the finger of God shows up literally moving. The first time in Exodus 31, Exodus 31, 18 and when he had made an end of speaking with him on Mount Sinai, he gave Moses two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. It's not a good thing to mock the Ten Commandments, folks. They're holy because the finger of God wrote them. The second time was in Babylon, and Belshazzar was the king, and he was throwing himself a massive party like like so many narcissistic world leaders in throughout history, they love themselves. And he throws himself this massive party. And it wasn't enough that he had a massive party. Then he decides, I need to kind of outdo myself. Can someone go grab the gold and silver goblets that were for the true and living God in Jerusalem in the temple? And we can put wine in them and we can mock. And that was the last move he ever made. 
because it says in that same hour, the fingers of a man hand appeared and wrote opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the part of the hand and wrote and said that Belshazzar became so petrified, his hip joints loosened up. I don't even know how that happens. Talk about knees knocking together. Everything became, I guess that can happen. Did happen. But here's what we know about all three occasions when the finger of God writes, it's always a serious matter. In this woman's case, it's life and death. It's always a serious matter when God has written all three times that we see in the Scripture. So it's not a surprise that as Jesus rises here, he gives a commanding challenge. We see it in verse 7. Look back in your Bibles, verse 7. So when they continue to ask him, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? He raises himself up and says to them, he who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. Ouch. He was silent. But now he breaks his silence and speaks. He stands up after writing and he turns the tables. Now they're in a catch-22. We said you don't play mind games with God. Now they're the ones. If they throw a stone, they're saying that they're sinless. Because he said, any of you without sin. Well, we don't know what he wrote. That might already be a problem. But even if he didn't, can you imagine, even if you don't believe in Jesus, you, everyone that, the reason they fought so hard against him is they could see his power and authority. That's why the officers, remember, they wouldn't arrest him. They said, no one ever spoke like him. If Jesus spoke into your eyes and said, do you have no sin, you're going to feel something. You can lie to yourself all you want, but that doesn't stop the fact that your soul just got an arrow in it. So it says, John says, when they heard it being convicted... The writing was kind of the warm-up, if you will. When Jesus looked in their eyes and said, if you don't have sin, go ahead and cast the first stone. This is when they're in the catch-22. If they throw the stone, they're saying they're sinless, and they, they know they're not sinless. If they don't throw a stone, it's obvious that they've been publicly corrected. Now they're in a catch-22. They don't have a good option. Actually, they have a third option, repent. They don't. But that was another option. Now they all become silent. Remember, Jesus was the one silent. They were saying, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Now they become silent. Follow along in verse 9. By their conscience, they're convicted in their conscience, they went out one by one. They don't respond. They don't answer because to answer would put them in admitting one way or the other. So they're just like, we're not going to answer this at all. We're not going to say we have sin. We're not going to say we don't have sin. We're not going to throw a stone. We're just going to slip out the back door as if this never happened. Now they become silent. Jesus stoops down. He writes again. He continues to write. If it was sin, he could write all day, right? But he, gets, he writes some more. But when it says that in verse 9, those who heard it being convicted, um, whatever Jesus wrote was already working on them, but man, when he speaks, it pricks, pierces that heart. And when the Spirit of God speaks, 
to our hearts, that's what brings the conviction. My wife and I, when we got saved, we walked forward at the altar call of Calvary Fort, Chapel, Fort Lauderdale in 1995. I knew the Spirit had pricked my heart. I knew I was a sinner. It was like Jesus looking directly into my eyes. I knew I was lost. My wife knew it. And we knew that God had spoken to us. It wasn't that a man had spoken to us. It wasn't that a priest or a rabbi or some pastor or some holier-than-thou person. We knew the Lord had spoken to us. And it was that conviction. Now, praise God that the Pharisees still have conviction. Amen? Because you and I, sometimes we watch leaders and we're like, man, do they even have a conscience anymore? Pray that they do. Pray that God pricks their conscience. And they silently walk out, one by one, oldest to youngest. We're not even quite sure why that's the case, but they, they do. It brings us to our last and final point this morning, a compassionate Savior. Pick it up with the beauty of this whole story. Even though it would be wonderful if the Pharisees repented, and we would have a multitude of conversions. It does not happen here. So far, the only Pharisee we know of at this stage of the game is Nicodemus, who is definitely believe in Jesus, but he is a secret agent Christian at this point. He's not let anyone know he believes in Christ, so he slides out with them, even though he's like not really part of them. You've all been guilty of this too, haven't we? Yes. Being secret agent Christians at times. It's time to not be a secret agent. It's time to be out and let your light shine. But back to our text. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one, this is verse 10, when Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. She immediately knew to call him Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Suddenly now it's just Jesus and this woman. This woman that thought that this was going to be her last day alive. Just minutes earlier she thought, I need to be saying my last rites prayers. I'm about to die a very horrific death of being stoned to death. She thought it was her last day on earth, but instead, this is the day of her conversion. It would be her first day alive, if you will, in the Spirit. And she's now looking into the face of the only one that can not only forgive her sins, but forget them. Isn't that great? Some of you com commit things that you still every now and then remember some sin before your salvation, but God still forgets it. Amen? We can still remember, oh, man, I wish I could go back in time and not do that or not do that or not do that. We can't, but God can forgive it. It says in Psalm 103.12 that as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Only God can do that. We can't even get them out of our own mind sometimes, but God can cast them out. And Jesus asked her, has no one condemned you? In other words, has a death sentence been given? And she's like, no, no one did commit me to death. I thought I, thought I was in a razor-thin margin of hearing death. But it never happened. No one, they presented the case, if you will, but no one condemned me to death. And Jesus says so beautifully, neither 
do I condemn you? Now this is big because at the end of the age, guess who is sitting on the throne to judge every soul that's ever lived? Jesus. He's the only one that can say you're forgiven or condemned. Ultimately, people can kill someone in this lifetime, but you can't kill the soul. Only God can condemn the soul and forgive the soul. And Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. She was looking into the face of forgiveness and compassion and receives both. Both compassion and forgiveness. We look at this whole book of John. Um, we, we've talked about this being the only Believe series and the fact that Believe is mentioned more times in the book of John than all the other three Gospels combined. And what Jesus is always drawing through his love and compassion is that we would believe in him. D.L. Moody wrote, speaking of the whole book of John, the Gospel of John opens with Jesus Christ in the bosom of God, but it closes with the sinner and the bosom of Jesus Christ. This scene opens with this woman well outside the family of God. It closes with her being brought in to the family of God. He came, Jesus came to bring himself to us, not to condemn us. Remember the world was already un, under condemnation. Jesus said, I have not come to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. You see, Jesus absolutely hates sin. Let's be clear. He hates adultery. They had fake outrage towards adultery. He actually does hate adultery. They didn't so much hate adultery because I have a sinking suspicion they liked adultery. Jesus really does hate adultery, but he loves to save adulterers and adulteresses, which all of us are. He loves to forgive and restore sinners. So he tells her, you can't go back to your former life. He says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. I don't know about you, but after I got saved, I realized I didn't even have to have a Bible tell me certain things I couldn't do anymore. I just knew, all right, that's, that's out. That's out. Uh, that came out of my mouth for the last time. Well, maybe, maybe close to the last time. And it was tailing, you know. You know, and it was like, it was tailing off. It, it, was, it took about a month or two, and like, all right, that can't. Uh, but I, I used to play basketball every Saturday morning with guys that I used to party with in South Florida, and we would get, get home at like 3 in the morning and play basketball at 7, and a lot of things that came out of our mouth should not be said. And I got saved, and they would start going, why is he not talking like us anymore? But Jesus tells you, you can't go back to your former life. And his compassion brings conversion. It brings the inward change, but an inward change means that we'll have an outward change. We don't go back to the same life. We don't go back to the same places we used to go. We don't live the same life of sin. Jesus hates sin, but he loves cleaning sinners. What a beautiful rescue that nobody saw coming. Jesus allowed this whole setup for a set free. He allowed the entire... He knew their little, little game. He's like, I'm going to allow your setup for a set free. And that's what a Savior does. He saves. The reason it's called Savior is because the word save is right in, the, right in the title. A Savior saves and he sets people free. Not just this condemned woman, but Pharisees, 
Nicodemus was a Pharisee. First century Jewish pilgrims. First century Gentiles. Asians. Africans. People from the Middle East. Europeans. South Americans. Pacific Islanders. Australian Aborigines. It doesn't matter where you're from on this earth. Jesus saves sinners. Amen? And he has compassion towards them. Even when you and I don't have compassion. Remember Jonah? He didn't have a lot of compassion towards Nineveh. He was like, smoke them, God. <laughs> They're the worst of the worst. Do you see how evil they are? God, just give me the word and I'll call fire down on them. And Jesus like, no, no, hold on. I'm going to set them free. That's the compassion of Jesus. He loves to save souls. Chesterfield County, Richmond, Virginia, New York, Los Angeles, Sin City, Vegas. It doesn't matter. He hates sin, but he loves rescuing sinners. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you that you are a Savior that has compassion. Lord, we've done nothing to deserve it, but your grace truly is amazing. We look forward to meeting this woman someday. And Lord, I pray that a bunch of Pharisees later came to their senses, and stopped trying to trap you, instead bowed their faces before you. And Lord, in this room, maybe we have people that are stuck in their sins. Maybe it's not adultery. Maybe it's some other sin. But Lord, I don't know. You do. Maybe online. And Lord, before we leave, I just want, if there's anyone, Lord, that you would speak to by your spirit, would, if the, today would be the day that you would you bring them, you, you set them up to come here just to be set free. If there's anyone in that condition, Lord, I pray that you would speak to their heart even now that they would call upon the name of the Lord and be saved for your compassionate Savior. And with our heads bowed, I just want to, before we close, we're going to close in worship in just a minute, but anyone speaking to any, anyone online as well, is there anyone here that says, man, that spoke to me. I came in here, no one caught me in my sins, but the Lord looked into my heart and I know that I'm still in my sin, but I want to be set free, just like that woman. I want to be set free by Jesus and saved and know that I'll never face God on judgment day. I'll only hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Anyone at all, raise your hand. I want to pray with you. If there's anyone here that is coming into this building and says, I don't know Jesus as my Lord. And I know who he is, but I don't know him. And more importantly, he doesn't know me as born again saved by the grace of God. Anyone at all, just raise your hand. I want to pray with you. I can't save you. I can give you the words of what God wants to do, but anyone online, I can't see you, but I'm going to pray, and if there's anyone here, and you pray, and you mean business with the Lord, come and talk to us after the service, and if there's anyone online, just pray, Lord Jesus, I'm asking for your forgiveness. Thank you for coming. Please cleanse me and wash me and forgive me of all of my sins. For I'm believing in your name for salvation and I'm turning from my sin to you. And I'm deciding this day to follow you, Jesus, for the rest of my life. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Write my name in the Lamb's Book of Life. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. God can change us in a moment. Amen? Why don't you stand as we close in song? And after we close in song, I'll give you the parting directions for a lot of food out there. <laughs>